Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, this week we get to hear from Robbie Dupree. I love Robbie Dupree. Most people probably remember him from this song right here, Steal Away. It reached number six in 1980. It was a huge hit. But what you're going to find out in this conversation that's really interesting, Robbie has never had a sort of conventional uh, music career. Not even when this song was huge and his debut album was selling big. The, it was never a time when like the label made him a priority, when there was big money going into promotion and uh, marketing him. He's never really had that. It's really fascinating. In fact, what we learn in here that I didn't know ahead of time was that his first two albums were never released on CD until recently. If you listen to the Linda Clifford issue, uh, episode, I mentioned a, a new label called Blixa Sounds. They have recently remastered and released uh, Robbie's first two albums on CD, and they were nice enough to send them to me. They are so good. I hope you guys will rediscover them. Anyway, to me, Robbie's career breaks down into two major benchmarks that has allowed him to continue all this time. Uh, one is that when his career started to die down in the States, the Asian market really took a liking to Robbie, and they gave him an opportunity to continue to make money, uh, make music and put out new albums. And that wasn't necessarily happening in other parts of the world, including America. And let me tell you, he's one of these people that we've had on here where if you think you know him because you know Steal Away, you're probably wrong because he has put out many, many more albums throughout the 80s and 90s, and they all sound very different. There's some jazz influence in there. There's even some like soft rock, some there's even some like some in the 90s have like little hip hop beats going on with them. It is he is a consummate artist, and you don't think about that necessarily when you think about Steal Away, if that's all you know. Secondly, the other big thing with him to me is that the yacht rock movement that has taken off the last 10 or 15 years has really given a lot of people a new lease on life. I'm going to further that theory at the end of this conversation because we're running out of time, but come back at the end. I'll tell you, I'll give you more fleshed out what my opinion on that is. Anyway, I love Robbie. I always have. Uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation. It's more business focused than some of the other ones we've had. He called me from his home in Woodstock, New York. I was seven years old in 1980 when Steal Away came out, and it's one of my earliest musical memories, one of my first favorite songs. And to this day, um, I still have a hard time deciding what is my favorite yacht rock hit of all time. It would either be Steal Away or Love Will Find a Way by Pablo Cruz. Those are the two that are most, you know, in deepest in my heart of hearts, my favorite songs. Uh, so I've been a fan ever since. And, uh, and, I, that, and I think people would probably be surprised if all they knew you by was just Steal Away. There is a very diverse and almost a complicated actual musical career or resume attached to you that I bet casual fans don't know about. And I want to talk about that in a minute. But for starters, I want to ask you a question you probably hate because you probably get it a lot. Tell us about how the germ of Steal Away came to be. Well, I had moved to California in 1978, pursuing um, a couple of musicians who I met back in Woodstock, actually a band, and I loved them. I loved their music, and we did a lot of work together in those days, and um, I followed them to Los Angeles, and one of them became a, a very important co-writer and co-producer of my of then soon-to-be solo career, and um he was in charge of writing most of the music 
and um, and that was one of the, except the things that I had brought with me from New York, and that was one of the pieces that he came up with the music, and uh, I was just charged with trying to write a melody and 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 lyrics for it, and I would tell you that I had no idea that I was going to have to play that song for the next <laughs> forty years. <laughs> you know, it wasn't. It wasn't the one that got signed. That wasn't the one that we really? got signed with. Yeah, and actually, I mean, we—I don't know how to not go out of sequence with the story, but oh, go ahead. Um, most of it was very, you know, just done. We were trying to put together a five-song demo. I brought like three songs with me, and um, when we finished the five-song demo, which included "Steal Away," we were unable to get a deal, mm. and every single stone was unturned in New York and Los Angeles. It was kind of sad because, you know, I was so happy with everything and the way it came out and working with these guys. And, um, and so I went back to New York and I was doing a job loading carpet on trucks no way. in, uh, in, in Long Island. Oh. And my drummer and co-producer's brother had run into somebody from Electra. I guess it's worth telling the story because it changed my life. But um, he had this, this guy, Al Bonetta had really nothing to do with my career ever, mm -hmm. but a guy named George Steele from uh, Electra records was going back to England to his father's funeral. And he came, stopped by Al Bonetta's house and they hung out and they were playing music and talking about everything. And then all of a sudden Al just put in this cassette Again, he had nothing mm -hmm. personally to do with me or the music. But the guy immediately said, who's this? This song reminds me of my father. Oh. Not Steal Away. Another song. Oh. It's The Feeling. But I don't think I can run away. I've been trying to deny it. Feels like I've been swept away. It's a feeling that comes over me. Every time you look my way, touch yeah. something deep inside of me and keep me wanting you everywhere. That filled me with emotion And it touched me right down to my soul Let me show you I've just got to know you And show you where I'm coming from It's a feeling that comes over Time you look my way, yeah. That's something deep inside of me, and keep me wanting you everywhere. Well, I really want you. And Al said, "Well, I don't know anything about it. I, I think he's back in New York working." He said, "Well, I'm leaving tonight, but I'll be back next week." And you tell him 
to call me and I'll get him a deal at Electra. And so after 15 years of gigs and showcases Mm -hmm. and press kits and all of that, it wound up that just in a coincidence that somebody heard a different song (laughs) on the record and, and, and loved it and had the power and got me a deal. And sure enough, I mean, I could hardly believe it, but there it was, you know, and that was, that's how it began. Back to the germane question about, you know, what was the inspiration for the song? To be really honest, I didn't really have an inspiration. It was a a song that was, it was like a, sometimes you write deeply and sometimes you write with craft. Uh And this was really the very basic rhyme scheme, simple, you know, Uh I like you, you know, Uh let's run away kind of a song. I never imagined the legs that it would have. I don't think anybody could have, you know. Yeah. I mean, you, uh, it's made your career, basically. I mean. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's the building There would have been no record deal. There would have been no record deal whatsoever. That was it. Because I had run out of every option. I mean, that was it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, Your musical and writing companion at the time, Rick Chudikoff, who I believe you're still tight friends with and everything. Um, what yeah. was, did you guys grow up together? What was the nature of your relationship? Why did it work so well? And was there, were there ever talks of it being like a Hall and Oates kind of thing or a Simon and Garfunkel? No, no. I'll tell you exactly what it was. We all came, we all arrived in Woodstock, New York from different places mm-hmm. around the same time. Mm-hmm. The, um, early part of the seventies and we all showed up for, for different motivations, you know, mm-hmm. and he was in a band. The band was called Kraken mm. and the band, when I met them, I just liked all the guys mm. and I just liked what they were doing. And, and I tried to, you know, go and visit their shows as often as possible and sit in with them. And I don't know, there was an attachment there. Rick mm. was one of the, original members of that band. And so uh, it was a great connection between mm-hmm. us, you know, mm-hmm. then after a couple of years, they, we even did a, we did an amazing, my band and that band did an amazing tour of all of the maximum security joints oh, in New York. Really? Whoa. And we were doing like two and three prisons a day. Wow. Two crazy hippie rock bands, you know, in these like tough, Attica, Comstock, Sing Sing, you know, like unbelievable. Yeah. And um, I kind of talked this guy into it, <laughs> you know. <laughs> really? That had a, had, a com- it had a company called Hospital Audiences Incorporated. <laughs> and they used to do stuff like puppet shows for kids mm-hmm. at hospitals. But I I conned him into doing this like full-blown rock thing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which, he probably, which he probably got fired for. Well, I bet the prisoners loved it. They did, and, yeah. and um, I don't know how open we are on this show. but You can uh, say whatever you want. Well, we were giving out joints uh, to of all course. of the prisoners. <laughs> who happened to, they, were carrying, they were carrying our equipment. We weren't allowed to carry anything, and so we were, giving, we were getting them high. It was hilarious. But that was really the bonding thing for, the, for, the, for me and, and, and Kraken, yeah. even though I had, I had my own band. Okay. And they moved away to California and I continued and their band changed and evolved and we stayed in touch. And then finally 
move up to 1978. They had been in the Bay Area, but they moved to L.A. Mm. And I decided that this was a perfect time to go there. Mm. I actually walked out on my own record deal at Mercury to mm. go there. And um, wow, uh, I, had a ba- I had a band and things weren't working out with the band. And creatively, it wasn't happening anymore for me. And I thought, do I want to get involved in a record deal for years with something that's not working? Yeah. You know, so I decided to leave them with the deal huh. and to get my songs back and to go. And wow. that's what I did. And that's so it. that's how the connection began. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, tell us a little bit about Woodstock at that time. I mean, it's been sort of romanticized for you know, Dylan and the band and all the other artists that were up there in this, I assume it's kind of an artist community. Was there any kind of, um, did you feel like it fed you creatively to become the songwriter you are? Was there any kind of uh, competition or rivalry going on? Or was it just a fruitful, you know, flourishing environment that allowed you to kind of grow? I I think that's the way it was. I didn't have any competition. And especially the kind of music I was doing had very little to do with any of the music Mm. that would be called, you know, sort of indigenous Woodstock music, you know, which you Mm -hmm. think about Dylan and the band and things of that nature, you know, and the folk scene that was here. But I had left New York. Um, I was in a band when, when I was young my first really good band was with Nile Rodgers. Yeah, I and, read that. I'm gonna, and, I want to hear all about that later because that blows my mind. He's one of my favorite musicians. Yeah, so when that band came apart, it didn't really break up for problems. It was just economically. Hmm. We were a mixed race band. It was hard to get work. You know, we were too white for white and too mm-hmm. black for white. And, you know, it was just... <laughs> Kind of a rough, rough time in the 60s, you know. Mm-hmm. And so when it came apart, I just decided to leave and go to upstate New York where I knew a lot of things were happening. Even though it was a small town, I knew a lot. There were several big recording studios and all those people that you named and more yeah. like Paul, but- Paul Butterfield was here and mm-hmm. Jesse Winchester and, you know, just on and on. I mean, yeah. tons, tons of great artists. So I thought I would go there because there would be great musicians in the neighborhood and um, it would be easier, you know, than New York. You can imagine how hard it is in New York trying to Mm -hmm. move gear around and Mm -hmm. get Mm -hmm. jobs that pay. It was just tough, you know. And so Woodstock was very vital, although I don't really, I considered myself more of a tourist in the beginning. Mm. Uh, They were really set you know, mm-hmm. all these people had interfaced. They'd come to be with uh, Albert Grossman's Bearsville records. Mm-hmm. And so there was a coterie of Butterfield and, and uh, James Cotton and, uh, you know, the band and Dylan and, yeah. and um, Peter, Paul and Mary and that whole ensemble. So I really, it took me a long time to really integrate, you know, mm-hmm. um, into that into into that scene and i really never really did integrate into it but i was a recipient of some of the good things that were happening around it and there were lots of there was lots of work in the area because of them you know there were lots of clubs and people coming here so it was great the most asked question about woodstock 
is what's the difference between today and then. Do you still live there? I assume you do. I still do. Yeah. Okay. I'm talking mm-hmm. to you from the studio right now. Okay. And the answer to that is that when I came here, everybody came here to find their dream. Mm. And now, in order to come here, you've already had to have your dream. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, you yeah. can't come here anymore like I did with like 50 bucks sure. in my pocket. Yeah. You know, you can't do that anymore. It's not yeah. that world anymore. Yeah. It sounds kind of like the hate ashbury Maybe in the mid-60s oh, like, yeah, it was, like any- you know, a ghetto, but now it's, you know, prime real estate. I could totally imagine. Yeah, and I used to live in Venice when I moved to California. I lived two blocks from the beach, and I paid like $280 oh. a month rent. Yeah. You know, so I mean, that yeah. things, it's it's universal, this yeah. um, kind of gentrification scene. I you bet. Know. But yeah. anyway, okay. I'm happy to live here. It's Good. great. You know, Good. Great well, you earned it. Um, okay, the reason I wanted to ask you specifically about the creation of that song and a little bit about your background was because, so if I go to allmusic.com, the review for your debut album, which got four and a half stars, by the way, is uh, only two sentences. And it says, Robbie Dupree's self-titled debut from 1980 features the hit Steal Away. Dupree was heavily influenced by Michael McDonald era Doobie Brothers. And I thought, now the Doobie, I, Doobie Brothers are one of my favorite bands and I love Michael McDonald, but someone wasn't hired to write an adequate review of your album. And I thought that sounded a little reductive. And I was curious if you really went in there thinking, I want to be like Michael McDonald, or if the, uh, if you brought your own flavor to the, to your career, this was what you had to say. You were an independent kind of free thinking artist of your own and the production techniques of the time. Cause yeah, there's that similar kind of bounce to, you know, what a fool believes as there might be in Steal Away, similar kind of production techniques from the era. But I wondered if Michael McDonald was really truly a, an influence on you or if that's just, you know, you guys kind of swimming in the same pool, so to speak. Well, there are, there are a couple of answers to that question. I think, mm. yes, Michael McDonald was an inspiration to anybody who mm. may be, but he was not he was not the impetus for that song or anything else. Mm. And even the comparisons in that song, lyrically, melodically, his is a much more complicated, sophisticated song. You know, we're talking about a lick, you know, Mm. that went on in the song and, you know, but that's a question you could answer for the rest of your life. And, Mm. and, and there's nothing you could really say about it. I um, was in the, was in the game a long time Mm -hmm. before. That's what I figured. And I'm still in the game, yeah. you know, and I'm and I'm still doing my stuff. So uh, in terms of him being an influence, he was the voice of the 70s and the 80s. If yeah. you ask me, there's, mm. there's nobody that even came close to um, what he achieved in that genre, you know, mm. and the cr- crossing over into, you know, he has a huge black following, you know, mm-hmm. on urban radio, yeah. or at least at the time. And, you know, so, yeah, I was definitely influenced. And so was groups that sure. you mentioned like ambrosia ambrosia yeah. and david pack and sure. you know we all we all we, he was like um always there but i frankly i was i was never um i was never a doobie brothers fan mm. and his and his moment in that band or that time in the band was the only time that um i ever really paid attention to them oh interesting know? huh okay so, wow uh, fascinating you know 
different a different kind of you know like yeah. listen to the music and Jesus is just all right yeah. and that stuff that was never my that was not my bag. Mm, mm, interesting. Okay. Yeah, they became a completely different band when he came along. I like both. You know, I wish there was a way for them to merge the two today somehow. I know they're kind of off on their separate paths doing their own thing, which yeah, is fine. Yeah, I don't think I don't think either one of them needs it. I think No, you're probably re- right. retracing something and even that it became really tough for the for the band that was um before him to really feel like locked in behind yeah. that music, you know. Yeah, that's probably it wasn't true. really it wasn't really as comfortable for the role that Tommy got to play and mm-hmm. Pat, you know, they they were they weren't they weren't the leaders anymore. Yeah, good point. Good yeah. point. Yeah, that's true. Um, and now I'll, they've got now they've got just what they wanted. You know? Exactly, they're all right now. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm curious. One of the things that I like to talk about on here are transitions in people's careers. And as you said, you were kind of you'd been grinding it away, grinding away for a while up until this point. So steal away. If I did, I read correctly that that like within 90 days of being signed or recorded, that's like a huge hit. And then follow that up with Hot Rod Hearts. Ten miles east of the highway, hot sparks burning the night away. Two lips touching together, cheek to cheek, sweatshirt to sweater. Young love born in a backseat, two hearts pound out. You've got to be feeling like your dreams are finally coming true, right? Well, yeah, but I mean, I was kind of numb. I mean, I couldn't believe really? it. You know, when, you, okay. when you've been on the outside, when you've been, been like a bar musician for 15 years uh-huh. and been through it all and played a million gigs, the fact that this happened, just it always seemed unreal mm. in, a, in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, I think going to the Grammys, and I just felt like I didn't really fit. Really? You know, I always felt, I didn't feel like I was a part of that clique, you okay. know, and, it, and it, I was not an industry guy. And we, we made all these records completely outside the industry, mm. just so you know. Mm. I mean, everything that we did was in a little home studio um, called Alpha. And Alpha was in North Hollywood. And Alpha was in a house. Wow. This is before Pro Tools. This is a real, you know, analog studio in a, in the engineer's house. And it was very affordable. And there were two clients. This was 1978. Uh-huh. In the nighttime, there was Prince. Uh-huh. And in the daytime, there was me. Really? And that's how the studio, that's all they were, two clients. Oh, wow. Did you interact yeah. with Prince very much or did you just see him in there? No barely saw him because he he worked all, all all through the night yeah and then 
he left in the morning, you know, and then we would show up at like 11 o'clock and he wow. was gone. Oh my gosh. And, um, I mean, I ran into him a couple of times, but frankly, he wasn't really anybody yeah, at that time. True. And neither was I. True. Nor we was just, he very we talkative. Making, yeah. Yeah. We were just making demos and we were That's just crazy. trying. Wow. But when the, when, when all of this stuff happened, we jumped back into the studio and, and had some more songs to record and kind of rushed the album out. And, um, and Hot Rod Hearts was an, an afterthought. The record was done. And Joe Smith, the president of the label, had come down to this little out-of-the-way studio. He even made some side-handed remark about it, like, oh, I see you're on Music Row. Uh -huh. Meanwhile, we've got a giant hit, and we don't have an album. Because <laughs> no I didn't way. sign an album deal with them. They wanted to give me so little to do an album. Oh, really? That I made it. I thought, I'll tell you what why don't we do this? Well, because it wasn't really their idea. Mm. It was this guy, George Steele fronted for me. You mm. get what I mean? Mm -hmm. So this wasn't like there was a bidding war. This was like they were doing George a favor. Uh -huh. And so what happened was, um, Joe Smith came to the studio for the one time ever. And he just started complaining <laughs> about how we're losing album sales. We got to get this album done. So he came on a, I can remember right. He came on a Friday morning to the studio and we said, we're turning the record in on Monday. No sweat. We're going to go to Bernie Grunman and get it all mastered and it'll all be done. So I was relieved. We finished it up. It was, we were listening to it. He's gone and everybody's sitting around the console listening to the final. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wow, great job, everybody. And all of a sudden, Gary Grant, the engineer turns around and says, I'm sorry, Robbie, we don't have another single. Really? And I said, yes, I oh. said, look here, you just saw Joe Smith here 24 hours ago. Yeah. We're turning that album in on Monday or else I'm, I'm going to take it myself and do it. So that's over with. Let's forget about, it. we don't have another single. And then all of a sudden Rick and Peter, my producers and rhythm section, they started to, kind of like side with him a little bit and i said well what's the what's the option here and he said well i i know this song that um this guy bill Levante wrote and like i could call him up and have him come down and i was so pissed off really finally i said i said yeah because you understand what i'm telling i had like sure. 36 hours left to turn an album in and they're talking about another song no way so I said, okay, rather than have a war, tell the guy to come down. He can play me the song. And in my mind, I, I said, I don't give a shit what it is. Right. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do anything about it, but I have to placate everybody. Yeah. So this guy pulls in and he sits at the piano and he plays like two thirds of a song that's hot rod hearts. <laughs> and he said, well, I don't have a bridge yet. And I said, all right, a, I don't like this song. No. B, it's not B, it's not finished. Yeah. So I'm not gonna do it. Well they they really got on me. So I went in and helped him and I finished the bridge with him. And then um I said, I'll make a deal with you. If we can record it all on Saturday and mix it all on Saturday and do the whole thing, I'll go along with this. But if we can't, I'm not gonna go along with it. 
Now, so if you if you had not gone along with it, would the label have just shelved your record, or would they have put it the out but with want, no the publicity? Label, I could have put I could have put out the Star Spangled Banner. Uh, they just wanted an album out. They yeah. didn't care creatively. Okay. They never they never once looked in on what we were doing. Okay. Wow. Okay. So yeah. what happened was this is internal. This is whole thing I'm talking to you about uh-huh. is just about the producers <laughs> and the engineer. But these are my brothers. Sure. You know, these uh-huh. are just people. So I finally went along with it. They called up. Brian Ray came down and played the guitar. Bill Elliott came in. You know, the usual crew all came in on a Saturday. We started in the morning. We finished the next morning on Sunday morning, mixed and done. And only then did I really understand that it was really great. Mm. And it was a great song and that they did a great job on the production. And I I was happy about it. And so was the label when they finally heard it. And so there was just, it was my um, apprehension about missing the deadline. (laughs) And from that point on, no one ever came from the label once to see us. Really? Talk to us about anything. So when when you're doing the second album, the Street Corner Heroes, same thing? People are just Mm -hmm. completely leaving you alone? Robbie knows what he's doing and we'll figure it out? Never saw, never saw anybody from the label. Our A&R guy, Kenny Batiste, um, who's now passed away, mm. he was, um, he would like, you know, call up or say, hey, come by this, he's from Detroit, you know, and he was like, uh-huh. hey, Robbie, come by the studio on, I mean, come by the <laughs> office on Wednesday. So I'd come in and he'd say, how's it going? But that was about it. You know, it was yeah. like really very cool. Uh, on one hand, they had bigger fish to fry. Sure. You know, they had the, they had the whole Warner Brothers scene at that time was huge. I mean, yeah. it was California music. Yeah. So they're worried about all of those things, you know, that are going on, all those projects. And they weren't really concerned. Hmm. Okay. And, um, and we turned in everything just independently. That's the way it was. Wow. So there wasn't this, like, we've just had this huge hit with Steal Away. We, Robbie, we need to continue to ride the Robbie Dupree wave. We need you to get in there, record Street Corner Heroes, get it to us quickly, because we want to continue to capitalize on this. They just sort of let you do your thing. And uh, did they, now did you, Brooklyn Girls comes off of Street Corner Heroes. And it's a mild hit. It's not a huge hit. Are you sensing as if they are 
not giving you the attention or muscle that you deserve, or are you fine with how everything's going? You've got the freedom you want. Well, again, there's never one simple answer to that. Uh, okay. You'd have to understand that the reason why that was only a minor hit was the fact that they pulled all independent promotion from all Electra artists oh. at that time mm. and Warner artists. And the reason for that was, was that there was a RICO investigation going on into payola. Right. Okay. And I got caught in that. Mm. I'm not that I did anything, but I mean, my right. record came out right when all of that was happening. My A&R guy got fired. Mm. Um, and so what you could see is the one, you know, you got to have somebody at the label, you right. know, and Kenny was, was our guy at the label. And part of that was he laid, he laid off because he knew we did know what we were doing. We weren't children. You know, we'd been doing yeah. this a long time and he was really happy, but he got canned. Various people got canned acts got dropped left mm -hmm. and right. Yeah. And so that record got caught and I'm not making excuses for it. No, I'm just saying there would have been more horsepower there if if it didn't get the rug pulled out from under it and they never came to us and told us that it wasn't like they said mm -hmm. hey guys you know there's something going on and if you want to promote this yourself you know that you can do that but we can't so by the time i found out from a guy named cal rudman when i was doing a tv show hmm. and he, he had he has he had a thing called Friday morning quarterback or Monday morning mm, quarterback Monday or morning something. Okay. It was it was a, it was a, it was a trade paper mm. that that pitched all of the records and you know it was just one of those kinds of things you know. Mm -hmm. um, he was down in South Philly. He for a while was became a guy who went on various TV shows and sort of prognosticated about uh, like, this right. is the next big thing and that's going to come up next and mm -hmm. here's this and you know so i was booked on one with him and then i was booked on this other one with him and this other one was to promote brooklyn girls and street corner heroes mm -hmm. and just as i was walking out on the stage to sing he said to me the record's dead oh i said what what record and he goes your record's dead i said what happened he said oh, they pulled they pulled all the promotion it's dead that's it oh. so there was no like internet to like try sure. to you know do something you know by the once you lost once the train pulled out mm -hmm. on on the record it's too late to save the record yeah even though the record only just came out it's already over oh so that was hard i you bet know, that was hard but, so um, tell me what you do in that moment because and this is the part where I wanted to kind of dive into a little bit where I, I, it seems as if things get kind of complicated for you after this, because it's another six years before there's another album. And then there's another six years after that, before another album, I couldn't tell whether, are you, are you reeling from the, from the, from the negative experience you've had? And that's, what's causing you six, to go six years without an album is no one wanting to put it out. Are you deciding you want to be your own kind of independent artist on your own terms? What What is happening to you in the aftermath of that that thing on your career? Well, that wasn't the last record for Electric. That's just the last record that came out. Oh. Um, oh. I had I had I had done um, also the first album. I had also recorded that in Spanish. 
Oh, right. Within a, and that, that, that record came out in Spanish. promotion in South America and then that led right into Street Corner Heroes and then after the mess with the whole independent thing we had a third album contracted mm. and I went in and recorded a bunch of that and then got and then um, got dropped oh. and it was so like it was like 83 I guess now or something and what happened was uh, I remember my attorney came to my apartment and said we got dropped and I said, well, did you go and play them the, the stuff that we have so far? Uh -huh. And he said, the guy told me it's not about music. Oh. And that was a big, big thing. It was about, it was about this, this kind of, you know, politics and yeah, yeah. all the crap that was going on at the time. So I just said, okay, I get it. So then I came home and in probably, uh, for the first couple of years, I, I just did live shows and kept thinking that something would pop, you know, that something yeah. would come back up, an opportunity or something, but nothing did. And then finally I met somebody in, um, from Seattle who came to produce a project in Woodstock mm -hmm. and we met and I had recorded a song called This Is Life. a photograph that reminded me of how we used to laugh I'm looking now through different eyes at all I took for granted won't someone tell me why you've got to lose it to know how much it's worth So much time upon this earth This is life This is very precious life Don't go throwing it away This is life Everybody's got the right Hold on to it It's a gift you can 
I love that song. And oh, thank you. Yeah. And um, I recorded the song, and he said, "I'm going to Japan. Do you mind if I bring it with me and see what I could find out?" And I said, "No, of course, take it." Uh huh. You know? Uh huh. And um, he came back and said, "I got you a deal in Japan. It's not a big deal, but we got to start over someplace." Yeah. Um, and he and he became my partner, manager, you know, mentor. And he taught me about how to uh, go about following where you are happening, not where mm. you aren't happening. Interesting. You know, don't get lost yeah. in the fact that, you know, now, like, you're still over in Europe and in Japan. You still have legs to do your thing. And uh, we'll find small license deals and put them together in France and so on in Germany and so wow. on and so forth. And uh, we'll, we'll rebuild this thing brick at a time. Yeah. So, so that's so, what we did. So and your career starts to kind of rebuild in Japan? In Japan. Wow. Exactly. Okay. And I had um, I had production deals in Japan and I started to produce records for others and um, and really diverse yeah. stuff like from like NRBQ really? to um, yeah, to uh, to um, Orleans, a double live C D of all Love Orleans. Best, yeah. Yeah, the best music. And a whole bunch of stuff, you know, wow. a whole bunch of interesting jewel sheer. And meanwhile, oh, I'm writing, jewels. building, and doing the stuff that I, I want to do. And yeah. we make uh, we make that the first album for Japan was um, carried was away. Carried away. When all the lights are out. And it's hard to sleep Then I start to dream Of a place Very far from here Where there's more to life Than trying to make ends meet And like a Second album was Walking on Water, yeah. then Smoke and Mirrors. Um, and then I started doing really independent stuff and just licensing it. Okay. You know, from that from that point on. And that's where I am today. Wow. I'm doing, still doing what I do. Um, I have a sort of a network that I can uh, filter the music into. Yeah. And the, the internet's been a big, tremendous help. And then all of a sudden, you know, I outlived these son of a bitches and got back all my records. <laughs> yeah. So, you know. Yeah. So, uh, and so I'm now, guessing I'm not, the Yacht Rock kind of um, those package shows that I see you do with, you know, Stephen Bishop or Orleans or whoever. Yeah. Those probably that that stuff keep must be great for you. They're all fun. You know, I do my own thing. And, and I have two careers. I have the old career yeah. and I have the current career. Now the current career is not 
any kind of explosive on the radio thing. Right. It's a fan based thing. I, I happen to feel very happy about what I'm doing and how Good. I do it and and the progress and the players that I work with and yeah. you know, these years have been very, very um a very big learning experience I about bet. all kinds of things. And so and so um there are no complaints and there are no regrets. It's all been good and then all of a sudden this um this yacht rock thing comes up really by a, a lark yeah are, are you familiar with who brian ray is brian ray i don't know that name i don't think okay brian ray started with me when he was very young he was on all of those early records at electra and continued he's been with paul mccartney now for 17 oh. years wow okay he's the uh if you see the McCartney band, he's the blonde guy on the right of the stage. Ah, I saw and, McCartney so, about 15 years ago. Yeah. Right. Well, Brian was in it then as okay. well. And Brian called me five years ago, maybe, and said, oh, I just got back. I was I went on a I went on a, a, a cruise with Weezer. They're my friends. <laughs> and um, and we were out having fun. And he said, you know what the thing was? The hit of the whole cruise was this band called Yacht Rock Review out of Atlanta. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I said, I never heard of them. And he said, well, interestingly enough, they know everything about you. Yeah. All they wanted to talk to me about was you and your music and what it was like. And they're totally dedicated to the music. And he said, I'm going to give you the guy's number. If you get around to it, just shoot the guy a call. So, you know, this is coming from Brian and Brian has been uh -huh. with me for like at that point, like 35 years. Wow. So um, I thought, let me give him a call. Yeah. So I called him up and they said the right things, you know, and they uh -huh. were very, very sweet guys. And they said, we're going to play our first gig in New York City at a little place called the Canal Room. Why don't you come down and see us? And if you, if you want, you could sit, sing Hot Red Hearts and Steal Away if you yeah. feel like it. Yeah. And I thought, all right. So I went there. There were like 30 people. And um, <laughs> they played them flawlessly. And really? I loved it. They spent Good. great. Oh, they do. So from that point, they they and I built this relationship. And then I said, would you like me to, you know, spread the word and try to get, like, my friends from those days to come out and do shows? And they said, oh, yeah, we'd love that. So I brought in... Peter Beckett and sure. Matthew Wilder mm -hmm. and Stephen Bishop and, you know, on and on, all these different, yeah. Christopher Cross, all these different people. And um, and the thing just took off. And I'm not saying it took off because of the guests. I'm saying that yeah. the thing took off because they were great. There's a and, thirst for that music and that time period happening right now that's really big right. and insatiable. And you guys are finally being able to benefit from all that. Right. And here's the funny thing. We'll play at a place with um, 2,000 seats and it's packed, sold out. And every single person in the audience is under 30. Really? No there's not way. A, there's not a way. That's oh. what I'm telling you. It's, it's, where are you? Where, I'm in Denver, Colorado. Okay. They're coming there. And if you want me to put you on the guest list, I'm not going to be there. But they're coming there in November. I would love and it. And if you want me to hook, hook you up and you'll go to the theater, I can't remember it. I mean, it's easy for me to find out what it, it is. But I'll we'll, look it up. 
they'll be there in November at a theater and you'll be blown away. I have They're seen them come through and I I always assumed it was kind of more of like a cover band type thing and but I've had like I've had Stephen Bishop on here, I've had John Hall from Orleans, I've had Walter Egan and a lot of them have sung the praises of this Yacht Rock Review band and experience. And so I I've got to see this for myself. Well, I'll I'll arrange it for you and then you can go and see it and say hello okay. to um to to Nick, who's the lead singer. Oh, that's great. And um, anyway, because Brian hooked me up and this whole thing started and then we were able to help build it up, you know, and now it's, it's huge. And yeah, you could, you could generally categorize it as a cover band if you wanted to, but when you see it, you'll understand yeah. what the difference is with it. You know, you really have to see it to understand it. That's what I'm and learning. It's become, it's become a phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And we, we played at um, 3,000 people at um, the, 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 the uh, not the cathedral, I can't remember the name of it, something like that in Atlanta. Wow. It was like three balconies filled, Whoa. you know. And um, they've just built such a great career for themselves. That is great. It's amazing. That is great. Amazing. Good. That is great. Yeah, so that, that, that jumped me up and gave me like a, a second thing to do, you know, Absolutely. instead of having to Otherwise you're out. It's too complicated when you're trying mm -hmm. to do your thing and then you have to do all of the old music. So this way there's a separation. Yeah. And um, it makes, it makes it a lot easier and good. a lot more, a lot more defined, you know? Yeah. Good. And I want to dig in a little deeper on some of your solo stuff because uh, again, going back to what I said before, it's all very diverse, very different. There's um, that album you did with David Sanctious of just him on the piano, basically. So yeah. gorgeous. Oh, it's beautiful. And uh and that was a live yeah, we did that up at his house. That was a live thing really? at his house. I just mm -hmm. thought I'm thinking when when I go back and I revisit your career as a whole, I'm thinking, here's a guy who, and this is my assumption, a hit like Steal Away, 
has given him some financial freedom to pursue the artistic, whatever they might be, every kind of muse or whim that's kind of pushing him along. And, uh, and he's doing these things so well. And I'm guessing you're enjoying this freedom because your albums are so diverse. Each one is different from the one before. And that says to me that it's not, you're not somebody chasing trends or trying to recreate a hit or whatever. You're a guy doing exactly what he wants to do. Well, I think that's true. And I think that there's um, a freedom that I never had when I was on the, on the big time labels. Mm. Um, not because they were constricting me, but because, as I said, I always felt like a, I always felt like um, I didn't actually belong in that scene. Like something inside of me always said, you know, that this is not, you know, you're more of a homegrown kind of a cat, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so when, when all of that stuff went away and there were options that were made for me by my partner, Bob Jenniker, and this whole Japan thing opened and all of that stuff started, I realized that, um, I could do what I want. I mean, yeah. of course, you, you paid a price for that because, you know, these albums, I use Steve Gadd, Tony Levin, David Sanctious, John Robinson, you know, all of the great players. So records are expensive. Yeah. But my records don't, my records don't yield. Um, break even is, mm-hmm. a, is a success right. for me. Right. And, and uh, that's cool because, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I've, there's no other way to do it. The minute you get involved with a label, some 25-year-old knucklehead mm-hmm. is going to come along and tell you, like, I don't know, maybe we ought to try and do something more like, do you think about having a rapper on the record? You know. <laughs> so you don't need that. So, you yeah. know. Yeah. Okay. So this is kind of this is kind of cool, you know, to yeah. just be able to do your thing. Good. Uh, let me ask you about Asia, and <laughs> it's funny you mentioned this. So. Let me preface this by saying I have a feeling some of my listeners are having a moment here of PTSD because uh, I I interviewed Stephen Bishop, who I like a lot, and I think I made him mad, and I didn't mean to do this. But um, I had also interviewed Bertie Higgins, and Bertie Higgins at one time had told me that he... I think every other year goes to the Pacific, does a tour of the Pacific Rim for like six weeks, and he makes his nut for a year or two just from that because he is still so beloved. That sort of soft rock sound of the late 70s, early 80s and everything is still so beloved over there that he's he's still a really big deal where he's not necessarily on the radio anymore over here. Right. Stephen Bishop, who, again, I respect a great deal. I like his music. I'm, I'm a little, he got mad at me, I think, because I think he thought that I was comparing him to Bertie Higgins. I was not doing that at all. But I'm, I do find it interesting that there is such a market for people, artists like yourselves. Um, well, I wouldn't say you're even that kind of an artist anymore, to be honest. An, an artist right. like yourself who had a hit of that ilk at that time in the Pacific Rim. Why do you suppose that is? And then my follow-up question to that is, these albums that you've put out, like Walking on Water, are they are they doing pretty well in the Orient?
on these albums and they're selling pretty well is that where you're breaking even well those albums were those albums are now you know old albums that's true you know, that's true and and um and there's been a lot of stuff since then you know that, but did um, they come out in the states or were they largely sort of you know had bigger releases out, in the, okay, the in way it, the way it works is this it, mm. it, the way i worked it was this the money's that came from the, for the productions uh, came from Japan, mm. but it. the rights, the rights to the rest of the world were open to me. Mm. So while they paid for the record, I had the right to license it in other territories as well. So even if there wasn't a lot of money, you could license, walking on water in Germany mm -hmm. and then you could license it in France. And then I came back here and licensed that record and, and smoke and mirrors mm -hmm. on a label out of Seattle called Miramar. Okay. And then I was licensing records to gold castle, which was Danny Goldberg's label. And, um, that's just been the way that I've had to roll, you know, okay. to like mm -hmm. make good product yeah. and, if you if you need 50 and you get 30 from here and 10 mm -hmm. from there and five from there and it all comes to 50 i don't care where it yeah, comes from good point. you know what i mean yeah it makes no difference to me sure so the main thing is you're as good as the difference with bertie higgins and people like that not not stephen bishop but a lot of people did their thing and then they didn't do anything else mm. yeah good point and they kind of held up and have been playing that stuff exclusively mm -hmm. and maybe they've made other recordings that no one's heard of or yeah. whatever i don't i don't that really are all know. still but, about nautical themes yeah <laughs> yeah probably i mean that kind, yeah like yeah. that that kind of jimmy buffett uh -huh. model. yeah and um and it's all good you know mm -hmm. but all i'm saying is that i'm not i'm not judgmental about it i'm just saying that i'm not in that business i'm Got in it. a different business that makes sense and uh yeah, and so whoever is interested in my music, it's a little bit of uh, made a little bit easier to find it because of the internet. Mm -hmm. And I'm not one of those people who objects to the internet. Good. I think without it, mostly all of us would be missing in action. Mm -hmm. And um, you'd never be able to find me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Never. <laughs> now you just have to Google me, and there I am. Yeah, you know? there it but is. Before that, if you're not on a label anymore, what do they do? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's so, true. So it's true. For older artists like like me, it's been a lease on life. Yeah, and um, an opportunity to do a lot of things that we couldn't do before. And now with control of the music and all of that, you know, the license. I mean, now they're they license steal away for 
Better Call Saul mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of movies. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a miracle for it me is. that that song did what it did. And then I get all these years later, I get to get it back. There's a sweet thing about getting it back after years. I believe it. You realize that those people at Warner Brothers never released it in CD form. That's true. I hadn't thought of that, neither, but you're right. Neither album. Oh, what? And <laughs> that's like nothing you can do about it. Yeah. So part of it, so a big part of me getting back the music was that it finally gets an opportunity just to have like an opportunity for yeah. it to be in the public again yeah. on some level, Yeah. you know? And, um, Weren't remixed or remastered versions of your first two albums released in with like deluxe editions fairly recently? Yeah, well, that's the whole thing about when you got a call from Wendy Jones about um, hooking this interview up. Yeah, Blix, Blixa, B L I X A, Blixa, yeah, is, is the label that has done all this stuff, and they've got Stephen Bishop's new, not new, but his. Um, Red Taxi Cab to yes. Manhattan or whatever. Love that. Called. Yeah. That, that just came out like this month. And um, lots of these things never came out in CD. Yeah. And it was, it's, uh, you know, one of those things that made it sweet to get it back. That's for whatever great. reason. Good for you. Just I thought they, they could have sold a lot more of it over the years had they not been the way they were. True. You know. True. I would I would imagine Steal Away is kind of a staple on any sort of like uh, time life, you know, compilation album of whatever. I mean, it's it's it's, you've probably it's been the gift that's kept on giving for, you know, almost 40 years now. Absolutely. Yeah. It has been been in many ways. Yeah. I want to make sure I mention in here, too, that uh, I think this is a new single of yours. It's I found it on Spotify, Ordinary Day, that was released recently. On the streets where life is cheap And kids don't have enough to eat This is no place for second chances A poor man fights to keep his pride And a rich man's never satisfied Don't believe that that's the way God planned it Is that are you just yeah. is are you just putting out singles? By the way, it's fantastic. And are you just oh, putting okay. out? Sure. Are you just putting out singles now, or is this you know the first step in a new album that's going to be forthcoming? What's yeah, the plan? Yeah, I think that's the way I put it. I have a couple of things that um I think it's nice to put out single versions, you know, just online. Yeah. And then what I'm hoping to do um, is finish several more recordings that are like in various stages right now. Yeah. And then maybe putting out an EP in the new year. Okay. And, um, and, um, just keep the flow. 
See, it's very expensive to do work on that level. If you listen sure. to Ordinary Day, you can hear the expense. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's That's true. Right there. You know, it's like strings arranged by Rob Mounsey. You know, it's like an oh, incredible man. thing. You know, it's like a yeah. really cool project. But I pay for them, you know. Yeah. And so yeah. you, to do a whole album at one time is, is just hard financially. Yeah. So I, I usually cut a couple of tracks. Um, and then I come back and finish them and then go through the process, the mixing process, and then release one and then release another one. And so, yeah, I've got, I've got some nice things I think for the, for the next release. And that's how I, that's how I, that's how I enjoy this part of my career. Yeah. Yeah. At the last chapter. Okay. um, it's kind of cool, you know, very cool. Good. Well, we're going to play a little bit of ordinary day right here. So people can get a, a feel for it and hopefully go out and pick it up. Um, so I just have a few questions that I kind of want to end up with. First of all, you got to tell me a Nile Rogers story that blew my mind. Um, how did you, how did you two meet? What was the nature of this band? How old were you? Tell us a story. Well, I was uh, playing with some guys in Brooklyn where I grew up and we had a little blues band Um and we weren't, we were doing a few gigs, but we really weren't getting any work. It seemed like I was never really, except for Steal Away in that brief moment, I was never really a pop guy, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we had this true. cool blues band and, um, and it kept not being right. Exactly. The two people that I was really happy to be with was the bass player, a guy named Johnny Ace, who was great. And, um, and, uh, a, a guitar player named Frank. And then Frank quit. Mm. And then John and I answered an ad in the Village Voice, which was a very important undergroundish kind of a newspaper sure. in the 60s. So we saw this thing and it said, you know, drummer looking to put together a band, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So we jumped on the train and um, showed up at this guy's house. He was obviously had a lot of money. And the other two guys that were there was Nile and his cousin, Tom Murray. Mm. And so we hated the drummer. He was terrible. <laughs> and so we went through this audition and then we went outside and just were like, whoa, that was horrible. But we dug playing together. Yeah. So we said, why don't we um, try to find a drummer and why don't we try to get together and um, see what happens? And that's how it began. And Nile and Tom, Nile was living in the Bronx. Tom was living in um, Harlem, and John and I were living in East New York, out in Brooklyn. And um, when I met Nile and Tom, they were both Black Panthers, mm-hmm. and we and we were like Brooklyn hitters, mm-hmm. you know. And so there was this funny chemistry that that yeah. happened yeah. between us right away but it all worked out it was cool that's great and then um we did that for it was called new world rising and we did that for two years and then the wheels came off you know the work was hard to find and yeah that was kind of you know the end of my um my new york city yeah um, okay thing you know and and nile uh, the story about Nile was nile was completely different than he is now Nile was, um, he wore 
overalls, like bib overalls, <laughs> and he was dirt poor, <laughs> and he used to have an afro pick stuck in his big oh. <laughs> afro. And um, his cousin Tom was like the most outrageously funky guitar player that you wow. could believe. So we, we wound up with this really cool blues fusion kind uh -huh. of weirdo band that wherever we went, most of the people just didn't get it. You yeah. know, it wasn't dance music. It wasn't top 40. It wasn't pop, you know, and so yeah. we had a lot of trouble, but yet it was what we all dug. Sure. Years later, after Niall had gone to Berkeley and all of that, Niall came with Chic, you know, the rest sure. of history. Of course. And then I did a benefit um, for Jerry Brown in New York City, and Niall was on it with, um, he was actually playing with the B 52s. Whoa. Oh, and, yeah. You know, Love Shack. Yeah. It was, sure. Yeah. And he was, he was doing stuff with them. Mm -hmm. So we talked, we kind of caught up in the hallway and we were reminiscing. And then he said, What are you doing? And I said, Well, you know, the big time is over, but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm doing another record now called Walking on Water. And the, and, the, and the title track, what do you say? Would you play on it? He goes, yeah. I'm, really? I'm, at the, I'm at the record plant. Okay, so I'll, I said, I'll be down like in a couple of days. He said, yeah, I have an office there. So I came down. I played him the tape. He said, leave me the tape, and I'll messenger it back up to you tomorrow. I said, okay. So he did all of that incredible wah-wah guitar. On no the way. Track. You know, it's like. That is great. I didn't know that was yeah, him. That's Niall. Wow. Yeah, Niall. See, once again, this so, is the downside the years, of you know, having digital copies of people's music because then you can't read the liner notes to know all that stuff. Anyway, right. go ahead. Yeah, and so and so, um, so every few years something comes up. So the yeah. last thing that came up was he had told an author who was writing a book out of England and it was called Chic and the Politics of Disco. Hmm. And, um, and, and the guy wanted to talk about early days so Niall put him on me, and um, and um, I was interviewed for the book and talked a little bit about some of our, you know, yeah. bizarre you know, sure. the guy who got murdered, murdered in front of the bandstand in Harlem, and no way. you know that kind of shit. You know, yeah. it was crazy. So, wow. um, so yeah, that's, so that's wild. Um, Very cool. 
my life in 50 minutes. That's great. Good. Well, look, I want one last question for you. Um, You know, you've been at this for 40 years. I'm guessing uh, what what, when you look back, just what is the craziest memory? I don't know if you ever met a hero. I don't know if it was I assume you performed on solid gold or you uh, played in front of thousands of fans. When you look back and you just think, I can't believe this happened to me. What is that thing? Well, it's kind of it's a funny thing. I mean, it's a lot oh, of good. beautiful things. Sure, happen. but this is a, this is a funny thing that happened. Okay, I got a call to do the um, Dick Clark's American Bandstand. Mm-hmm. It was in L.A. Mm-hmm. You know, it had left Philadelphia years before, and so um, we were going to go on and do Steal Away. And my birth name, last name is Dupuis. It's right. French, D-U-P-U-I-S, mm-hmm. but in Brooklyn nobody could ever pronounce it so I became Dupree 60 years ago so um when I got to do the show I called my mother and father um and told them you know I'm gonna be uh on American Bandstand I knew they would know what that was you know sure and um and I said so you know tune in on it'll be this particular Saturday so it turns out that they have a bullpen of different artists that do the show. Like you have like six different people doing oh. three different shows, one after another. Oh. And um, I saw Jermaine Jackson was there that day and the point <laughs> wow. sisters were there. And it was so cool. And I thought, Oh, this will be great. Yeah. But no, that's not what happened. What happened was that they paired me with Johnny Rotten. What? And, Oh, that famous Public Image Limited uh, non-performance where he just wanders around while the song's playing. That was, that was, so here's the funny (laughs) part of it. I'm waiting to go on and he's just spitting in the camera. He's just being a complete maniac. (laughs) So my mother had called back to Brooklyn and told everybody back there, oh, my son's going to be on American (laughs) Bandstand but he changed his name. <laughs> so, all of the, so all these old Italian women in Britain yeah. watched that and thought that was me. Oh man. Here's Johnny Rotten just making, you know, <laughs> making a joke out of lip syncing on TV, basically by just wandering around yeah. pretending. It's oh, a, that's it crazy. A, and you were there. I was I was not only there I was on that show I was the next up. Oh, I've just seen the clips on YouTube. Oh, crazy! Yeah. Oh man, how crazy is that? That is so. That's wild. a pretty. That was a funny. That of all crazy. the pairings that there could have been, me with him. No kidding. It couldn't have been further apart. So wow. it was pretty pretty hilarious. Very cool. Very cool. I love that yeah. story. That's great. Oh, Robbie, I got to tell you, I've loved you since I was seven years old. Thank you so oh, much man, for talking great. to me. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. It. And uh, I hope take people care. will be reminded of all the great music you've done and check it out because there's so much more to you than just this one song that everybody knows. You know? Well, send it to my send everybody to my website, RobbieDupree.com. We will. We and will do lot. it. There you have it, Robbie Dupree. 
I love him. And guys, seriously, if you are unfamiliar with his stuff, get on Spotify and listen to those albums that came out in the 80s and 90s. There is so much interesting music on there that I bet you don't know that doesn't even sound like Steal Away. There's some really great stuff. I want to close it out here with one of my favorite songs from that second album, Street Corner Heroes. This is Saturday Night. I love this track. And it's available on those Blix of Sound CDs. So check those out if you want. The first two albums, they sound great. Now, here's my theory. I know that the term yacht rock and everything incites some laughter and some snickering, but honestly, you think about this, somebody creating, not just, because if you call a movement soft rock of the 70s and 80s, people aren't going to come out with the intention of enjoying themselves and partying and letting loose and having fun and loving the music as much as they would if you call it something kind of fun and funny. The humor behind the term Yacht Rock is more unifying. And that's what has... And by virtue of other bands calling themselves Yacht Rock, they get to sort of participate in this kind of humorous, fun-loving fun vibe that is now associated with that music that just calling it soft rock would never have accomplished. I hope that makes sense. I just think it's really interesting. It is that music is still successful and those bands are still going strong and these tours are still doing well because yacht rock is a fun thing to think about and a fun word to say. That's what I'm saying. Isn't that interesting? Now, the rest of the next two weeks, we're going to be talking to a couple of artists who you might call them Yacht Rock. They're definitely from the 70s. They have received, they're back on people's radars big time because they were both featured in a recent, very successful movie soundtrack. Uh, I'm going to leave it at that. You may already know who I'm talking about here, but that's what we've got the next two weeks. Okay. Huge thanks to Wendy Jones, who helped set this up. She does the publicity for Robbie. She did it for Stu Cook with CCR and Linda Clifford. Huge thanks to Blix the Sounds for sending me some CDs. And a big thanks to our listener, Jed Bodwin. He's the one who, who got helped me get in contact with Robbie in the first place. Also, huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makevich for putting everything together. And you guys know the drill by now. You can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. We will be back with a new episode next Tuesday. Thanks, everybody. We love you. We'll talk to you later.